Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. In this conversation, I'm, I'm going to be talking to my friend, Danny. We're just going to use first name only. And we are going to talk about the concept or theory of autogynophilia. Um, you can Google that, autogynophilia, or maybe I'll leave something in the show notes that explains what it is. Um, you know, I just glanced at the Wikipedia article on this, and it, it gives a good overview of what autogenophilia is. Um, it was started by, it was coined, the term was coined by a sexologist named Ray Blanchard and has been um, popular, popularized through other scholars such as J. Michael Bailey, James Cantor, and Lawrence and Alice Dreger, and, and, and several others. Basically, autogenophilia is a theory about a kind of trans experience that some biological males or natal males have. Um, whereas many trans people, so let's just say biological male trans people, might be same sex attracted, not same gender, but same sex attracted. Somebody who experiences autogenophilia would be opposite sex attracted, so a biological male attracted to females. And one of the main things that uh, autogenophilia captures is this idea that some people are sex, some biological males are sexually aroused at the idea of having a female body. Whereas for other biological males who are trans who don't experience autogenophilia, they might have a, a very just feminine uh, appearance. They're very f stereotypically feminine in their behavior, whereas somebody who experiences autogenophilia would be a biological male who might also experience some level of gender dysphoria, but they have a more erotic component to their gender dysphoria. They are aroused at the thought of having, of inhabiting a female body. So my friend Danny um, experiences autogenophilia. And so um, this topic is very Controversial. Some people say it doesn't exist, which is simply untrue. The question is not whether it exists. I have several friends who experience this, um, who experience autogenophilia. So it, it, in as much as they exist, it exists. Um, the question is, how do we understand it? How many people experience this? Is it something that's just on the fringe of the trans conversation? Or, you know, some people would say that other people would say, no, like if you're a biological male who's trans, who's attracted to women, you probably have autogynophilia. And there's lots of debates about everything in this conversation. So I'm very excited to talk to my friend, Danny. I've known Danny for a few years now. We've had lots of conversations about this. He not only has the experience, but he also is, you know, that experience has um, forced him to do a lot of research, uh, wrestling with what is autogynophilia, uh, does this fit his experience, and how does he navigate this with his Christian faith. So um, I really can't thank Danny enough for having the courage to come, and he wanted to have this conversation publicly. Um, so yeah, really encouraged by him, and I think this conversation will help out other people who might have experienced autogynophilia without knowing the name for it. So please welcome to the show my friend, Danny. All right. Hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my friend, Danny. Danny, how are you on this early morning? Well, it's early for me. It's 7.30 for me. Um, it's <laughs> for you. But uh, yeah, uh, thanks for coming on Theology in the Raw. Thanks, man. I am I'm so, so, so excited to be here. I am a huge fan. You know, I, I just listened to the episode with you and, and Chris on it. Oh, and yeah. I don't know if we're going to be able to match that kind of chemistry, but I'm hoping to, <laughs> to get somewhere close. Well, it's funny. She she did so good on that episode. 
in the past, she gets really nervous about mm-hmm. being, you know, people listening and stuff. And she talks so that so in the past when we've done it, we've had to do several takes. Cause I'm like, dude, just be yourself. Just talk. <laughs> don't cause she's worried about saying the wrong thing or saying too much yeah. or whatever. Or like, um, and yeah, she, she definitely did, did really good on that, on that, um, on that episode. So I'm feeling a little nervous, a little starstruck here, but, uh, yeah, I'll try to relax. <laughs> oh, you're fine. Um, well, let's just get into it tell people, you know, who you are as, as much as you want to share. And then I definitely, you know, want to get into this concept of autogenophilia. Most people don't even know what that means. And they're probably tripped up when they even hear that word. Like, is that an English word, you know? Um, but yeah, uh-huh. I'd love to dive yeah. into that, but tell us, uh, give us a little running start about uh, your story, who you are, and, uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, well, there's a lot to tell, I think, um, but I'm going to try to keep it to the the relevant portions uh, as it pertains to gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So um, going back, I, I think it's helpful to start from the beginning. Basically, for as long as I can remember, uh, I have longed to present as or experience life as a female really some of my my clearest memories from childhood kind of center around that concept. I was jotting down some notes before this just so I could try to um, articulate myself clearly. And it was it was amazing to me how many moments I could recall from childhood of like that that kind of centered around this desire of mine. And, and I'll go so far as to call it kind of an obsession hmm. back when I was a kid, um, a fascination, this persistent desire um, to, yeah, be a girl or some approximation of that. Um, I had dreams about it. I I remember one of my earliest memories growing up. Um, it's kind of a, in some ways, it's kind of an embarrassing memory for me. Because uh, I, I look back on myself and I was trying to manip- manipulate my sister into um, kind of daring me into trying on her ballet leotard. <laughs> and it's embarrassing because I look back and I was I feel like I was so transparent. But I guess <laughs> I, you know, it was my little secret and uh, I was able to do that. Um, I remember, for instance, in second grade, uh, our teacher asking like, hey, if you could trade places with anyone for a day, who would you trade places with? And I'm kind of showing some of my age here, but I was like, I'd, I'd trade with uh, Cameron Diaz because I'd like, <laughs> I want to experience life as a girl. And I didn't tell anyone that. That wasn't the answer that I said in class um, because I, I, I always kept this very close to the vest. I, I just kind of knew intrinsically mm-hmm. um, that that I would kind of be made fun of or that it wasn't appropriate for me to kind of have these desires. I remember being fascinated with like RuPaul on Hollywood Squares. We used to watch that a little bit. Um, or um, there was an opportunity. I don't know. Maybe we had a like a themed field day in elementary school. And, and one of the girls in my class brought in like this old fashioned dress. And they were like, do any boys want to try it? And of course, you know, it's like, no. But then, uh, you know, I think one boy was like, yeah. And then that gave me permission. So I was like, oh, I want to like wear it. And that was like a really like, yeah, that was really fun for me. This is all um, elementary, remember, this is elementary school still. Yeah. Okay. This is elementary school. I remember in middle school, um, sixth or seventh grade, there was this, they introduced this concept of like powder puff. 
you know, where the girls play football, the boys oh, yeah. are cheerleaders. And at the particular school I was at, girls got to like choose one guy. So like each cheerleader would choose a guy to kind of take her place. Um, and I remember trying to convince this girl, like, hey, I want to do that. Like, will you let me to do that in so many words? And this guy is like, why do you want to do it so much? And I was like, what? Me? I don't. Like, who cares? <laughs> it's stupid. But <laughs> <Talk> about, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And get going on into middle school. Um, that's, I think, when I first started to kind of sneak into my mom and sister's closet um, to try on what they were wearing or if like something was left in the bathroom, if I was like at a friend's house or something like that, and there were like girls clothes left hmm. on the bathroom floor or like a hamper or something like that, I would kind of take advantage of that situation to, to put on those clothes. Um, in high school, I got the opportunity to opt in for powder puff. So that longstanding dream became a reality. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years in school as a junior and senior. Uh, in fact, I was captain of the Powder Pub Cheer team senior year, so huh. a real oh, wow. dream come true for me. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's basically any opportunity that I had mm -hmm. where I could feasibly be dressed up and yet have an excuse that like, oh, my arm was being twisted or this yeah. is just like uh, any kind of socially appropriate way to to bend those gender boundaries yeah. without kind of revealing that, oh, this is actually a deep desire that I have. This actually means more to me than it does to everyone else. Yeah. And are you, you're um, attracted to, uh, girls still, I mean, or are you attracted to guys or are you, or is that not a category you're really exploring at that point or, <laughs> uh, at this point, um, I remember in middle school wondering, you know, cause I, I hadn't really fully reconciled to myself what my desires were in terms of uh, like, I, you know, it was funny. I, I would, like I said, sneak into my mom and sister's closet, do all this stuff. But I, in those moments, I wasn't really thinking like, what am I doing? Like, what does this mean about myself? I, I wasn't really asking those existential questions. I was just kind of going with the flow and, and, and just kind of, um, doing those things. Mm -hmm. And so I remember in middle school one day, I was, I just asked myself, like, am I gay? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what is this? Um, and, you know, back in those days, <laughs> I make myself sound really old, but uh, <laughs> back in that time, you know, middle school, especially gay was basically like, a you know, a bad word to say about someone. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I asked myself, honestly, I was like, what is this that I'm experiencing? Um, and, and it didn't seem to fit. I was attracted to girls. I, I didn't have like any strong sex drive or anything like that. There, there wasn't that present. Um, but I knew that I was attracted to girls. Uh, I longed for female companionship, I think, to be accepted by females. Uh, I knew I wanted to get married to a girl someday, but yeah, that it, it, it wasn't very, um, wasn't really a focal point of mine in, in middle school or anything like that. Okay. 
Um, yeah, but actually, I, 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 that provides a useful transition to kind of talking a little bit about sexuality, which I think is important to link into this conversation about autogynophilia, um, which in my story, I'm still kind of a long way from discovering, okay, actually. Yeah, but yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah so uh, growing up, I, I think I was, well, I know, I was just a really self-righteous church kid. Um, grew up going to church. I grew up believing in God. There wasn't like a moment that I had where I, I knew I was a Christian. It was just sort of like a, a given for as long as I can remember. This is my set of beliefs. Um, so I, I really had this habit, I think, of minimizing my own sinfulness and, and maximizing and being acutely aware of the sinfulness of everyone else around me. And this was really, I think, exacerbated in my adolescence. Um and early adulthood, when I realized that I essentially had no temptation to look at porn, no temptation to masturbate, which was apparently, from all accounts <laughs> that I heard, kind of a problem that a lot of people had. Um, <laughs> you know, I heard Greg Coles recently at the uh, Exiles in Babylon conference, shout out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and he was sharing how in youth group, um, they got together, they got together all the guys and they got together all the girls and they, they were like, guys, listen, we know that you want to look at pictures of naked women. Mm -hmm. So just don't do that. And Greg was like, Hey, all right, this is awesome. <laughs> uh, like I must be some kind of super Christian because yeah. I don't have those desires at all. Um, and, and it was only later, I think he said something like that. He found out that his desires were so shameful that yeah. that they couldn't even be brought up. Right. And I really I really resonate with that story because mm -hmm. I I feel the same way. Like I kind of felt like I was a super Christian like hey, I have no um desire to look at pornography. I I have no desire to masturbate. So I must be doing pretty good here. Mm -hmm. Um I I looking back, I really I think my it's, it's going to sound weird to say, and I don't really know quite how to explain it, but I feel like my sexuality was almost like dormant. Huh. Like it was sitting there. I was functionally sort of asexual growing up okay. in that. Did I have attraction towards members of the opposite sex? Yes, there was attraction, but there was it wasn't rooted in anything sexual huh. necessarily, Interesting. Um, which which makes sense with what I've learned later that orientation, as you and I both know is not just rooted in wanting to have sex with someone. Right. Um, it, th there's so much more that it is rooted in. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I had that experience with my sexuality where it just wasn't really a, a big deal for me. So I had, going back to kind of the, the gender side of things, I had these secret desires, the secret life behind closed doors, but I hadn't really admitted to myself that it was really a thing. So it didn't really preclude me from that self-righteousness that I was feeling because I, I hadn't reconciled the fact that I had these desires. Well, finally, I went off to college and uh, through this campus ministry that I was part of called Christian Challenge, I got really serious about following Jesus and I and what it meant to walk with Jesus and, and um, surrender to his lordship. What does that mean? And I think I finally experienced enough cognitive dissonance in my brain mm -hmm. um, from what I was doing secretly and from what I was doing uh, the opposite of secretly. Publicly or? <laughs> Publicly. Yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. 
it, where I, I came to the realization that I, I have to reconcile what is happening here. Mm-hmm. So at one point in this Bible study I was a part of, we were challenged to embrace James 5.16, mm-hmm. confess, confess to one another and be healed. Um, so there came this moment this morning, uh, my, some dear brothers of mine, including my actual brother, I'm, I'm an identical twin, which I think is interesting. And we can oh, talk more about, um, we were praying on campus cause again, very righteous. Um, and, uh, <laughs> we, there came this moment where one of my friends started confessing some sins and it hit me. I knew immediately like, oh no, God, I don't want to share this about myself, but I felt like God was really calling me to, to share this secret part of my life. And so I, I couldn't work up the courage. We finished the walk and my friends were all about to like peace out and go to class. And, uh, I kind of said already kind of fighting back tears, something like, Hey guys, like, I really feel like I need to share something with you. Will you skip class and like, just hear me out here. And, you know, college kids, I, I don't know if they had any problem with skipping class. <laughs> They're like, all right, sweet. Yeah. Uh, so we sat, we went to my brother and I's apartment and I, I shared with them in the limited language, the really limited language that I had at the time. Like, I don't know what I said. I think I said probably something like, hey, I don't know how to explain it. I, I am a lot. I, there was a lot of prefacing, like, just so you know, I'm really ashamed of this. <laughs> just so you know. Um, but I, I, I said something like, I'm addicted to, to cross-dressing or something like that. Like, yeah. I, I didn't really have any other words to yeah. describe it in the moment. Um, you, so you didn't, kind you, of didn't my, say, you didn't say, like, I desire to be a woman or I feel like I should have been a woman or something like that. Like, those, those categories weren't quite there or no okay. yeah yeah those those categories weren't really there at the time and i had sort of wondered um this this was a constant question to me is like what is the end of my desire hmm. is the end of my desire just to be able to wear women's clothes all the time and present as female all the time and pass as female all the time of course i didn't know all those words at the time either present pass all those right, things right, right. um but yeah, I, I kind of wondered that, or I wondered, am I, am I like one of these transgender people that I have seen on the news or read about or that sort of thing? Because my experience doesn't really seem to directly map onto that. Um, hmm. Yeah. So besides, um, besides that moment of coming out, more important than that, I think, and, and that was the first moment of coming out. Um, I kind of viewed that moment as the end of my testimony. So I was like, okay, in my mind, from this point on, anything that follows is just going to be sort of like irrelevant. It's going to be like, and they all lived happily ever after. Like I, I, for lack of better words, I kind of viewed myself as healed at that point. And mm. That I wasn't trying to deceive myself or lie to myself or anyone else. I really felt like, um, hey, I've confessed this, and now I've experienced like I'm a new man in Christ, 
And so I'm going to lean into what that looks like to, to be a new man in Christ. So I told some of my close friends, I, I told my then girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, essentially that narrative, which oh, wow. is like, yeah, um, hey, this is a part of who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been crucified and risen again with Christ, and now I'm this new person. Um, how did she? I'm curious how she had, at that moment. Do you remember yeah. how she, what she thought about? Yeah, it I will not forget that moment. Uh, <laughs> so we had just gone to see. It was around Christmas, and we went to see the Nutcracker Ballet together. Um, and it was a big struggle for me because things that according to our culture are sort of inherently feminine are, are some of my bigger triggers for experiencing gender dysphoria or the sense of dissonance that I have, right. Of feeling like, Hey, I, that's, I really want to be that person or to be dressed like that person or to be experiencing what they're experiencing. Um, so I, I felt really especially prompted. I was already I was already gonna tell her, but then after that night I was like, gosh, I, I, I can't really keep this inside anymore, especially after I've told now several others. And so I shared it with her. And she was just uh incredibly gracious. She looked at me, um and there was just absolutely like no condemnation you know anytime you're sharing something like this anytime you're coming out it's like there's a very real sense of vulnerability attached to it of like hey i'm kind of laying myself before your mercy here and i'm kind of at your mercy in terms of are you gonna reject me or are you going to kind of embrace me and she did um to her credit yeah um she fully embraced me and and yeah, was ready to continue uh, moving forward in our relationship. That was nice. Oh, yeah. yeah, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of moving forward in our relationship and kind of swinging back from the gender pendulum to the sexuality pendulum, uh, we got married, as any good Christian should, right after college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, essentially, yeah, right after graduating, uh, one of the one of the first of my friends to get married. I was really proud of that. Um, and as part of that arrangement, getting married, uh, as you might know, um, or might assume I became sexually active, uh, for the first time in my life. I, um, and what that hap- what happened then was that I experienced this massive paradigm shift in the way that I experienced my body where that sexuality that I described as kind of being dormant, yeah, I guess you could say it, it sort of awoke from its slumber. Wow. Um, and I had this, this huge paradigm shift where all of a sudden I kind of experienced myself in like a, a sexual way, which was just so different for me. It's difficult to describe even, but yeah, it was like, I wasn't sexual uh, and then I was. <laughs> wow. Um, all of a sudden, and it, it was in a way that I was totally unprepared for, hmm. kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, we kind of had trouble finding community in the place that we moved after we got married. Um, it was, it was a challenge for us and we 
experienced some early marriage issues, some tension. And I think in that, I was kind of seeking relief. And one day I, I stumbled upon these, uh, these transgender fiction stories that I used to read. I, I forgot to mention that back in, uh, back in high school was when I first kind of stumbled upon this category of online um, through Yahoo Answers, believe it or not, where people would, would write these ridiculous, obviously fabricated stories like, um, sorry, do I need to say any of that again? I think I lost you for a second. Oh, uh, no, you you're fine. Any? You're fine. Yeah. It was, I, I think okay. on my end, it was frozen a little bit. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So these stories that I discovered somehow on, on Yahoo answers like, um, Hey, uh, my sister caught me trying on her clothes and now she's like forcing me to dress like a girl for a week. Mm. So she's asking me to ask Yahoo answers. Like what, what should I wear? Like stuff like this. Mm. Um, so I kind of stumbled upon that in high school. It was kind of innocent enough. Um, but then now stumbling back upon it after after getting married, um, those kind of innocent enough fantasies turned into erotica stories. Mm. Um, and that kind of led me to understanding that my gender and sexuality, these secret desires that I thought I had overcome through Christ back in college, they had sort of become intertwined with my sexuality okay. in a way that I couldn't quite explain in a way that I, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't get rid of no matter how much I didn't like it. So I kind of fell into this pattern that would continue to sort of be a struggle for me. Um, yeah, even to presence where, uh, either I would fall into like cross dressing and or reading this erotica, pairing that with pleasuring myself sexually shame, resolve to never do it again, uh, and then doing it again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of over and over and over and over again. And then five or six years into marriage, I had kind of like, I had finally reached this breaking point where I, I came to the realization that something needed to change. Um, and the thing I was leaning towards changing was, I think that I needed like, I don't know, start presenting as female, like part-time, maybe full-time. Like basically I, I had this sense um, from Levitical law and just my understanding of the Bible that God didn't approve of my cross-dressing, but I had come to a point where I honestly didn't feel like I had the strength to resist that urge anymore. So I kind of brought this up with my wife and she kind of felt blindsided at the time, you know, because the narrative I had presented before we had gotten married is, Hey, this is in my past. And now I'm telling her like, this has so plagued me and I cannot resist it anymore that I, I don't know if I can go any further without embracing this somehow, whether it's like dressing up at home or things like that. Um, well, I, I really well, can I ask yeah. a quick question. Um, Please do. Yeah, the um, <laughs> Preston. <laughs> I've got a bunch of questions. I'm trying to. I, I'm trying to withhold uh, until you get through your whole story. But the, the one that I do want to ask is: so the cross dressing component, I've <laughs> seen variations within people within the broad, let's just say, trans umbrella. On one end, cross dressing is to you know, there's 
there's no erotic component to it. And then on the other hand, there is an erotic component. At this time, was it an erotic component? Like, was it more lingerie, underwear, and and just was it more to fulfill kind of a sexual desire? Like, looking back now as you kind of interpret your past or? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, when I was in high school and middle school, and I, um, I noticed sometimes uh, that I would become aroused when I was cross-dressing. Um, but because I had this sort of dormant or untouched sexuality, there was no temptation for me within that to okay. bring that to any sort of release or anything like yeah. that. Um, and really, I just kind of viewed it as an inconvenience because it was kind of counteracting that image that I was hoping to see back of myself in the mirror of female. Right. Um, so it was, it felt kind of incidental at that time. Um, but then after I got married and, and when I would cross dress, I would feel this arousal. Um, okay. and all of a sudden there was this need for release because, you, because your play. sexuality had been awakened at that time. So that, okay. Yeah. yeah so to speak, <laughs> I have a, f- a friend of mine so who um, has a similar story and he said, when he cross-dresses, it's really – he says it, his experience is is really different than anything he's, that he's seen. Now, I'm sure it's out there. But he said mm-hmm. it's not – it's when he's experience, – he, he experiences a lot of high levels of anxiety in life. And for him, the only thing that relieves his anxiety is like women's lingerie, like sexy garments. But he says it's not – that sounds like, okay, that's just eroticized because it's not really that – it's just like this, this like – femininity that just like soothes his soul and you know <laughs> sure um yeah what is so you know even, even describing that he's like so ashamed and everything. I'm like, Dude, just be yeah. honest with what you're experiencing we can't and you know so i appreciate him even sharing that but it's like he was just trying to grab because it wasn't when i read autogenophilia stuff it's kind of like that but not quite it was just more but it wasn't just like non-eroticized femininity like some other trans people might experience um so I don't know, yeah, if that resonates at all or Yeah. No, I definitely I I find that things that are especially feminine um have sort of it, it you know, and and we can open up a can of worms as to yeah. what that even means. Uh but I think everyone knows what I mean. Yeah. Uh things that would be regarded as especially feminine right. in our society that those are things that have sort of a a special a special lure kind of over me and over my psyche of like things that I feel especially drawn towards. Well, I even asked him, I said, just what about silk, silk boxers, silk shirts, wear a silk shirt, you know, for the men's department or whatever, if that exists. Yeah. Like, no, it has to be, there's something mental that like, it has to be from the women's department has to be for females, you know, Mm, it was almost a psychological component wrapped up in it. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Anyway, I, yeah. I, I, I can identify with that. Yeah. No, good question. Uh, and I'm almost done with my monologue. I okay. Promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I, I reached this breaking point and I felt like I, I couldn't really resist anymore. And that's when I kind of secretly, I, I started searching like Christian cross-dressing. Again, I have very little terminology to work with at this point. So I was just like Googling what I could in incognito mode, of course. <laughs> Keep it out of my search history. I don't want anyone knowing I have these struggles. 
Um, so that's when I discovered, uh, and I promise this isn't meant to be a, a plug for anyone listening. That's when I discovered the Center for Faith, <laughs> Sexuality, and Gender. Um, and through it, a wealth of resources um, like the Hole in My Heart podcast mm-hmm. and other resources like that, where it was like, it honestly was like I was stumbling across a desert oasis mm-hmm. after kind of wandering through the desert where I realized I wasn't alone. I didn't have to struggle alone. And I didn't necessarily have to hide my experience in this secret shame. Um, that was a really huge watershed moment in my life. Um, and from that point on, I, I kind of started to read more, learn more, listen to more podcasts, things like that. I had these important questions that I wanted to answer. Namely, what was my experience? What is this that I have? And what does it look like within my experience to faithfully follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. Does that mean that I can like cross-dress sometimes to relieve this tension that I feel? Or is that totally off limits? Or yeah, I, I just... I, I was kind of open to discovering whatever it was that I was going to discover. I had this question I mentioned to it to you before. Uh, what What is my desire? Was I sort of, I, I'm using air quotes for people on audio. Was I just a cross-dresser or yeah, was I, was I like a true trans person? Um, because of those aspects of the trans narrative, the typical trans narrative that I didn't really resonate with. For instance, I never felt like I was a a girl trapped in a boy's body. I always had this internal sense of self that I was a boy. It's just that I really wanted to be a girl or experience like that or accepted as such. That's such a Um, fine distinction. I don't know if if that can even sink in the people's... As I hear that, I'm like, what's the What's the difference? You know? Yeah. What's the difference? <laughs> like, I don't feel being... like I am a girl trapped in a boy's body. I just want to be a girl. Because a lot of people would talk about non autogenophilia trans people in that. Like, oh, right. so you just want to be the opposite sex. Uh, but that's. Yeah. And I, yeah. I guess for me, it comes down to I had heard all these stories of people saying, like, I knew that I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. And I would tell my parents that from a very young age. And for me, that didn't really resonate Mm. because I was like, well, I didn't. Yeah, I I never thought that I was a girl Mm -hmm. in any sense of the word. Mm. I I knew that I I longed to experience life like that, but that wasn't my thinking. And and telling my parents was the furthest thing from my mind uh, from my earliest memories. Like um, I, I mentioned that. Um, that early scene that I have in my head of me manipulating my sister. Um, what I didn't say was that, you know, I, in my head, I thought, oh, I should say something to my sister so that she doesn't think I'm enjoying this. Meanwhile, I remember kind of looking at myself in the mirror and smiling like the Cheshire cat, um, just like ear to ear, like at, at this side of myself in this ballet leotard. So I, I yelled out, to my sister, like, I'm going to kill you. I'm like five or six at the time. Um, and, uh, my dad comes up and like is knocking on the door to like get in. Cause he's like mad that I just yelled this to my sister. And I'm like, 
one second, one second. I'm like quickly like changing because I knew like I couldn't tell my dad, like my dad couldn't know this about myself. So telling my parents was like the furthest thing from my mind. And I wasn't, yeah, I had never sort of insisted, Hey, this is, this is who I am Mm -hmm. internally. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it is a really fine distinction and it's difficult to explain, but I, I just knew when I heard those stories, yeah. part of it resonates, obviously the part where I'm like, have these strong, uh, sort of compulsive, yeah. uh, irresistible urges to present as a member of the opposite sex. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, that's where the distinction is for some it's, for me, it's a member of the opposite sex. And for some, it's like, well, I am a member of what you might consider to be the opposite sex. You just can't see it because I'm trapped in the wrong body. Right, right, right. Um, That's interesting. So you didn't, you you wouldn't say you were, you experienced like gender dysphoria. I haven't heard you even mention that. Or or would you be, if you went in, be diagnosed with gender dysphoria? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When, uh, a question I have often asked myself, um, do I have gender dysphoria to the level that it would be diagnosable through the DSM five or whatever number we're on now? Five, yeah, five right now. Yeah, um, I think I experience mild to moderate levels of gender dysphoria. Okay. I heard Cat um, on your podcast a long time ago use a use a analogy that was really, um, helpful for me, Cat LaPrairie. Um, and it was this, that it's kind of like, oh wait, no, maybe it was Ben Schulke. Okay. Sorry guys. If you're listening, (laughs) (laughs) maybe you both said it. Um, it was, it's kind of like the radio it's compared to the radio gender dysphoria. Sometimes it's turned down so loud that it's all you can think about. And sometimes it's barely buzzing in the background, right. but you know that it's there, right. but you kind of have to strain to hear it. And I've had those moments where like, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is so weird because I know that I experience significant gender dysphoria at, at times, but right now it's hard to access it. Like it, it feels so distant. Like it, it, that belong, that experience belongs to someone else. And yet sometimes it's so loud in my head that there are times like, I don't know. Today is a, uh, well, maybe I shouldn't, I, I don't want to peek behind the curtain of the production too much, but today is April 26th. I don't know when this podcast <laughs> is going to come it'll out. Re- it'll probably two or three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, on April 18th, I woke up feeling like, so just a, last week, I don't think I can do this anymore. Wow. Like I, I think that I have to transition. I don't think I can be satisfied in this life until I do. Wow. Um, yeah. So what can I, I mean, can you pinpoint like what, what triggers tr- that? Yeah. Um, is it lack of sleep? Is it being around certain environments <laughs> or, I mean, I really, I mean, really it's, and I know for some people that are like, I have no clue. Other people can kind of pinpoint yeah. certain environments that exacerbate their dysphoria. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, I can pinpoint it, so to speak. I do know that I um, can kind of feel more dysphoric 
if I'm, like I said, if I'm looking at things or kind of interacting with things in my everyday life that are um, typically associated with femininity. For instance, uh, if I see makeup, like lying out on someone's countertop, I go to a friend's house and um, there's like makeup out on the countertop. Like that makes me desperately like want to like wear that. Wow. Um, or yeah, things or, like that. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, um, and if I, I so some things I say could sound like I'm trying to be funny or whatever. I'm really, I'm, I'm not. But like, <laughs> if you, if you, if you wandered into like Victoria's Secret, would that be like disastrous? I mean, um, something like that where it's just so like in your face, or is it not that? cut and dry um yeah no i think uh that's kind of disastrous for most males no matter what i mean unless you're gay but um sure i I mean yeah it would be um disastrous in a sense for me and that it would be it would be very difficult for me to be there without wanting to put on those clothes myself okay. without imagining myself in those clothes. Not to say that I would, you know, necessarily like lose control and right. start like stealing stuff. Yeah. Although, over a mannequin uh, and rip the- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the temptation might be there, yeah. honestly. Like I, I often feel temptation to, um, kind of do things that are outside of cultural norms. Yeah. Um, because this desire within me, kind of reveals itself as, as desperation sometimes. Oh, okay. it, it's, it's so strong that it's like, I, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't struggle with that, but I, I might compare it to sure. sort of that sense that if an alcoholic might be around a bottle of alcohol, that compulsion and drive to like, yeah. um, drink that is it, sort of, for me, I, I feel this kind of compulsion or drive to, um, yeah, to present as female as realistically yeah. as I can. Um, Let, let's go back to – let's finish your story. And uh, yeah. I would love to learn like when you discovered this concept of autogenophilia. And we haven't even – you know, I'm sure mm. – I, I, I record my intros typically after. So I'm sure I've already explained it a little bit just so people kind of know, um, yeah. you know, um, get a running start to what we're talking about. But um, yeah, I would love to hear when you ended up discovering this concept and, and your research in that and – um, what Perfect. that was like. Yeah. We've got a mind melt. I was thinking the same thing, um, <laughs> that chemistry, just like I was talking about. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I had recently in my story kind of discovered the center for faith, sexuality, and gender, and, and started reading and pouring over these resources in, uh, a desire to answer some of these outstanding questions that I had about myself. So one night I was searching for answers uh, in a book that had been recommended through somewhere. Um, it was Mark Yarhouse's Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Right. And I came across this term that I had never heard of before called autogynophilia. And all of a sudden it was like a light just came on. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think this might be me. Um, but then I kind of quickly reached over and turned off the light cause I was like, I, I didn't, I didn't like 
what I saw uh, in that description that I'd read. It sounded really taboo. It sounded really deviant. And I, I didn't want that to be my experience. Um, so and, and even in the book, he explains that there's controversy surrounding the theory. And so I think I kind of clung to that. And I, I kind of heard mixed reviews about the theory of like, well, maybe it's just like totally bunk and, and, and made up. Um, and I, I really wanted there to be another explanation because I was genuinely distressed um, by by what I had read. Um, but yeah, at that point, I think it was around that time I actually reached out to you for the first time. Yeah. Um, I was traveling for business and we set up a phone call just so I could kind of bounce some ideas off of you. Like, hey, I've heard about this autogynophilia thing. Like, what do you know about it? You're, you're kind of the expert Preston. So <laughs> you tell me like, what, what's up with this? Um, and yeah, you, you, um, listen to, to some of what I had to share. Well, you listened to all of what I had to share, <laughs> uh, and then, um, gave me some thoughts on it and, and talked a little bit about the controversy. And from there on out, I think I was more open to it. So I gradually kind of started okay. to discover more, and more, and the more I read, so I, I started out with this chapter on autogynophilia um, from this book by Deborah So called The End of Gender, which I can't recommend the book um, because I haven't read the book. I only read the chapter about them pertaining to me. I've, I've read it. It's it's yeah, it's worth reading. I've got several issues throughout with it, but yeah, it's, it's worth reading. Yeah, I actually heard about it through you and a book review oh. you did on it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. When yeah. I saw <laughs> when I saw you write in the book review that it mentioned autogynophilia, I was like, oh, I have to read that. Okay. So I read this chapter. I find that I found that to be very like exposing in a sense. Okay. You know, it's like um, when I did the enneagram, I used to say that I never felt more exposed by anything than I when I realized it was an enneagram seven, and I read these description these descriptions and it was like it was like putting a spotlight on me and revealing all of my inner workings well uh that was amplified times 10 uh when i read this account of autogynophilia in this book the end of gender just this little chapter about it uh and then multiplied by a hundred when i read deeper accounts into it like uh Men Trapped in Men's Bodies mm -hmm. by Ann Lawrence. Um, and who that is, is... And Ann Lawrence is a medical researcher who is a male to female trans who identif who says, I have autogynophilia, right? And then... Yes. Yeah. She identifies as an autogynophilic transsexual. Transsexual is the, the word that's primarily used, well, pretty much exclusively used throughout the book. The book was written in the early, late 90s, I think, early 2000s. So that was kind of some of the language that was being tossed around at the time for a transsexual was like someone who had undergone medical transition right. from male to female or female to male. Right. Um, and that was a distinction that doesn't really exist anymore. We don't really use that word so much anymore, but I, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of how she identifies, I think still. Yeah. Um, and what was so fascinating to me about that book is like, well, fascinating and scary. I mean, it was really kind of painful to read at times because it's like, gosh, talk about my innermost workings kind of being revealed for everyone to read about down to like um, sexual desires and fantasies and this like secret um, 
addiction that I had had to erotica. Like mm. it's just like fully laid out in the book. Like it, it's as if they said, Hey everyone, this is what Danny's doing rather than just talking about right. okay. uh, okay. in general. Can you, um, it, um, it was that close of a, yeah. Real quick. I mean, I sorry to keep cutting you off, but um, maybe give a, uh, as if I didn't introduce the concept, maybe just give okay. a, the most airtight, clear, articulation of what autogenophilia is. Um, and I know there's probably different variations. No pressure, no yeah. pressure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, Anne Lawrence uh, defines autogynophilia um, as, well, Ray Blanchard defined it. Okay, see, I'm already getting off track. Yeah. Um, a propensity to feel aroused at the thought of oneself as a woman. Okay. Um, and, and that's it. That is the definition now ray blanchard he's the sort of the father so to speak of autogynophilia he created and coined the term in 1989 hmm. um it's rooted in latin um to mean love of oneself as a woman mm-hmm. um now ann lawrence in this book men trapped in men's bodies i heard ray blanchard and ann lawrence on two separate podcasts recently that they recorded, and he describes that book as the definitive book on autogynophilia. Okay. Um, men trapped in men's bodies. Well, what's, so help, what's she helpful? Really she's a, she, what's helpful about that book in particular? I mean, Ray Blanchard's a you know a sexologist. Um, right. who, yeah, he's a father. You know, he's written tons of articles on it. He coined the term. But Anne Lawrence is a self-identified autogynophilic, autogynophiliac trans identified person, um, medical right. researcher. And then, but that book surveys like over 240 or something story. So yeah. you have kind of the sweet spot of a personal story, the medical professionals and, or the medical credentials and loads of other people. It's not just her telling her story, but surveying other people, which is why I think what I like about that book is it does give kind of layers of nuance to different kinds of experiences that might be classified under the broad umbrella of autogenophilia rather than kind of collapsing it under kind of one stereotypical kind of understanding, you know? Um, Right. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that the book lays out as kind of it describes autogynophilia is that there are, that it, it, they define it as a paraphilia. Um, so in other words, this intense, uh, sexual desire, um, I can't remember the the textbook definition of paraphilia. I think that it's they like give. an a, it's like an atypical, Atyp- yes, sexual atypical desire, something that's just part not part of the majority experience, or whatever. But that even right. that's because we could say same sex attraction is a minority experience, but that's not classified as a paraphilia. So yeah, there mm-hmm. might be something more. You can Google it. I'm sure if you're listening, <laughs> paraphilia. Yeah. Um. So. Blanchard and then further and Lawrence lays out these four different types of autogynophilia that's that someone might experience, um, which are anatomic. Mm. Um, so wanting like experiencing arousal from, uh, imagining oneself with like the body parts of a female, okay. uh, behavioral that is, um, to imagine oneself like engaging in kind of typical female typical behaviors uh whatever that looks like which can range from um having sex as a woman to riding a sort of female type bike uh yeah that that can really range quite broadly 
um, physiologic. So like experiencing female functions such as like pregnancy or breastfeeding or even menstruation and then uh, transvestic which primarily applies to like putting on women's clothes uh, and they don't have to be we talked a little earlier about like intimate apparel lingerie it doesn't have to be anything like that it okay. could be um like a bow in your hair or something or i mean a bow in your hair or like socks with like frills you know around like the ankle or um like a I'm trying to think of like the most basic, uh, just like a, a t-shirt basically, like that's right. a women's t-shirt or right. yeah, it could be anything. So yeah, there's kind of four types that they outline and, uh, I experience, I, I think all of them to a certain extent, but to varying degrees, like uh, what they outline in the book is that people, autogynophiles who um, have stronger anatomic autogynophilia, mm -hmm. tend to also have stronger levels of gender dysphoria. Okay. And for me, like I've never hated my, I, uh, you hear a lot of trans people talk about how they hate their bodies and, um, autogynophiles are, are not excluded from that category. There are a lot who would really hate their bodies, feel shame in their bodies. I, I, um, fortunately don't really have that sensation in myself, mm -hmm. but I, I have, you know, imagined myself with, um, female parts yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So real quick, uh, there's a couple of distinctions yeah. I think for our audience would be helpful to clarify, like the mm -hmm. difference between somebody who might experience the difference between a trans under the broad trans umbrella, autogynophilia, yeah. and then everything else. Um, mm. typically autogynophilia only affects biological males, or at least it's like 99% or something. I mean, it's, it's, there's been some, I don't know, exp ex explorations of biological females who might experience this, but for, for the most mm -hmm. part, it's biological males who are mm -hmm. not attracted to other males. Um, like they would be attracted to females and they would have a more, for lack of better terms, a stereotypical masculine uh, social resonance, you know, like they yes. might be athletics. It's, it's fairly popular among military men in the military who are very mm -hmm. masculine. And, um, J. Michael Bailey, another guy who's written on this talks about, you know, mm -hmm. computer programming or kind of masculine, typical fields of profession, electrical you know, engineering. Elect stuff like yeah. That. Yeah. So yeah. it's, which all of that is very different from another kind of trans biological male, trans identified person who might be just, more stereotypically female, um, probably attracted to other men. Mm. Um, and this is where Blanchard had these two kind of airtight categories of you have the, he called it the homosexual trans person who's attracted to the same sex. Um, and then the autogynophiliac who's attracted to the opposite sex. Um, do, those I'm so glad that you brought that up, <laughs> Preston, because I totally passed over that. And that's one of the major yeah. <laughs> kind of... Uh, um, point aspects yeah. of the theory. So, um, yeah. Do, do you find those broad distinctions accurate and helpful? And I'm, I'm asking both for your own, your own personal story, maybe other people you've talked to, and then also in your research. Because um, that's probably where Blanchard's gotten the most criticized is there, he says, mm -hmm. two airtight boxes and there could be more fluidity uh, between them. But um, yeah, we'd love to hear yes. your thoughts on that kind of, those kind of distinctions within the trans 
identification. Yes. Let me rewind a little bit okay. and then I'll answer that question. Um, so, yeah. Um, what Ray Blanchard set out to do is he was working at this gender clinic um, and he had seen kind of, yeah, what he thought was a, a lot of different types of quote unquote transsexuals come through the clinic and he sought to kind of understand them and categorize them. There were tons of categories. So he was he was seeking to kind of simplify these categorizations and, and seek if there was um, some smaller common denominators that people could be categorized by. Uh, and so, yeah, he came up with these two subtypes, the non-homosexual male-to-female male transsexual and the homosexual male-to-female transsexual, which all of these terms sound yeah. terribly antiquated <laughs> now, 20 years later, but at the time were pretty standard yeah. um, for the field. Um, so essentially his theory was that, yeah, there were two types of, of transsexuals as evidenced by the patients that he was seeing at this gender clinic. There was the homosexual type, of course, referring to biological male um, wanting to be with biological male. Um, so in this subtype, as you mentioned, they kind of express themselves in overtly feminine ways from a very early age. They would have what would be defined as early onset gender dysphoria. So from like the earliest of ages, we're talking like three years old. Um, these people are very clearly like um, expressing themselves in ways that are kind of female typical um, yeah, have female typical interests and, and that sort of thing. So he had that category. Um, and then he had cat the category as you described for the non-homosexual, uh, which is what I would fall into, um, being someone who is attracted to women. Um, and within this category, yeah, not stereotypically feminine, would give no indication that they are feminine and often end up transitioning later in life. Like we're talking yeah. about middle-aged transitions. Usually they're married, like they have kids. Wives, families, yeah. When they come totally. out at 40, 45, or 50, you know, people are like, what in the world? Like never would I have guessed because they're again, they've had a very masculine kind of mm -hmm. background. Um, so yeah, the theory is extremely um, controversial and I think pr one of the primary reasons for the controversy surrounding it is that people feel like he's making broad sweeping generalizations by right. clumping people into these two categories. Um, and I, I think that's a very fair criticism. I, I don't think that it's helpful. I have found the concept of autogynophilia very helpful for understanding myself and my own desires. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily helpful to use these two categories and say, oh, you're attracted to women, therefore right. you must be this, or you're attracted to men, therefore you must be this. I, I don't find those helpful. So I would agree with, with critics on that point. Uh, another reason why it's kind of controversial is because Blanchard or Anne Lawrence would address critics by saying like, well, basically, if you are 
heterosexual and you experience gender dysphoria and you say that you are not autogynophilic, you're, lying. you're misreporting, <laughs> yeah. you're lying, you don't understand yourself. And this is based on tests that Ray Blanchard conducted where they measured um, tumescence. I won't get into what tumescence is. People can... And maybe don't Google it, but essentially <laughs> male arousal yeah. at um, stories of like wearing women's clothing or that sort of yeah. thing. So even people who said they weren't aroused by wearing women's clothing, a lot of them did yeah. show signs of arousal when they heard stories about right. like this sort of thing. So that's kind of how they base their argument of like, well, if you say if you say that um, you're not autogynophilic, you might be lying or subconsciously kind of misreporting without realizing right. it. You haven't reconciled to yourself that you experience this arousal, even though that you do. So it's kind of suggesting that I know you better than you know you. Yeah. And this is the category that you fit into. Which, yeah, that those tests, the penis doesn't lie, as they say. But um, I... <laughs> um, I can see both sides of that. I can see how that can be really offensive for somebody else in a lab coat to mm-hmm. tell you, I know you better than you know you. Yeah. At the same time, my very basic Christian anthropology tells me that sometimes that's true. Like sometimes, sometimes um, right. you have people, again, struggling with an addiction or something or like, I'm not addicted to alcohol. How dare you tell? I know, you know, I know my limits or whatever, like, or I'm not this, that, like, it's self-deception, especially when shame's right. involved, and that's also true too. So, I, and I right. don't know where to go with that because when I when I read when I read uh, J. Michael Bailey's book, "A Man Who Would Be Queen," which mm-hmm. um, is another contra- very controversial contribution to this. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then when I, in my basic understanding, when he gives his description of the kind of here's kind of the aspects of somebody who would fit an autogynophiliac. And then I look around in society, I'm like, I see a whole lot of people who fit that to the T, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I, who am I? I don't know these people. They're just in the sure. media or whatever, but it's like, my word, like it's, you could not get a more, or somebody I've, I've, I've read people, some trans women writers who say autogynophilia doesn't exist, but then they'll turn around and describe their experience. And it's like, it's almost like you're quoting like autogynophilia mm. literature when you're describing your experience. And for me, it's, and, and people who, I don't know, who, I don't know. There's for, for me, I want to look honestly at this because again, I, we talked offline whenever I talk about this, which is usually briefly in passing in my talks, I almost yeah. always get people that come up and say, Oh my gosh, you're describing my experience. I thought mm-hmm. I was the only human on earth that, that, you know, experienced this. Now there's a name for this. It's, and it's really liberating. So my motivation mm-hmm. is to say, Hey, if this thing exists, which it does, but how widespread is this experience? Right. My goal is that let's expose not exposed, but let, let's be honest with what we're wrestling with so that people can move forward in life. If we just pretend like it doesn't exist, that's not helpful. And yet, at the same time, I do know people that would use this to stigmatize people. CEO, you're just, you know, and that's, I'm equally frustrated at that. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's a hard balance, you know? Um, Cause yeah, I don't want to tell people, Hey, this is what you are experiencing when it seems like they are, but not, can you speak into that a little bit? Have you talked to 
other people yeah. that might be where you're kind of <laughs> like, I feel like you might be in denial, but you don't want to say that or. Yeah, sure. It, I think that the truth probably as you are saying lies somewhere in the gray area where like there's more autogynophiles than the deniers who say that it's just made up by transphobic scientists to delegitimize trans experiences. There's way more than they think that there are. Um, but at the same time, there's probably less okay. than Anne Lawrence or Ray Blanchard would suggest that there are, I think. Do they get, um, do they give a percentage or anything of biological males within the broad the trans book, umbrella? Yeah. She says, and she says this many times within like the first uh, little bit of the book, um, that's a great academic reference for you, by the way, the first little bit of the book. So go look up where I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Uh, she says all or virtually all oh, wow. non-homosexual uh, transsexuals experience autogynophilia. Non-homosexual. That so that's not, that's not, that the that's not all biological male trans people. It's uh-huh. all who are not all who would identify as heterosexual being a biological male um, versus um, who is attracted to biological females, Um, which, you know, these terms, as you know, that we're using right now, uh, biological male, biological female are in and of themselves um, can be controversial in some circles. A lot of people like to use terms like um, natal, Natal male. Oh, or um, uh, male, uh, assigned male at birth, yeah. AMAB, or assigned female at birth, um, because the the theory is that like basically biological sex doesn't exist. Yeah, um, I mean, there's people that believe is, in a flat Earth too, but I mean, I, I don't. I, how many? I don't know. I tell people like everything in this in this conversation is controversial. At the at some point, you just have to be okay. Here's some of my assumptions and I'm going to be gracious in how I present them. But, um, yeah, it's interesting though, because like those, so these are like, these are like major tenants of some. Now, when people say like the word trans ideology, that's it's as I've heard you say many times, (laughs) it's, it's hard to pinpoint, like, what are you actually talking about? Because there's so many different kind of branches of transgender beliefs and ideas. Um, that it, it's really hard to pinpoint what, but some loud voices within transgender ideology are promoting this idea. Um, and there's been a backlash and autogynophiles are kind of the recipients of that backlash. So yeah. I've listened to podcasts recently where it, it's interesting, autogynophiles kind of take fire from all sides of the debate <laughs> where it's like, okay, so people on the right, um, on the far right, like, obviously they're going to be like, um, okay, so there are, these are like freaks who like want to dress up as women and, and get pleasure from it. Yeah. Um, then there are people who you would generally associate as being very liberal people on the left side of the, uh, of the political line like feminists, for instance, a lot of feminists raise questions about um, gender identity ideology. Um, This idea that like, for instance, which we could talk about if we wanted to, like trans women are women or kind of ideas like this. 
uh, and say, well, actually, I think it's important to protect female spaces. And now I hear that there are some kind of, I, I couldn't tell you all the waves of feminists. So forgive me for kind of generalizing. We're a moving bit, but from I, three to four right now, from what I hear. Yeah. Uh, third wave feminism has been around for a couple decades. And I've heard people talk about a, we're moving into a fourth wave, but yeah. Yeah. So I've heard some um, pushback from feminists saying like, well, you know why we're, you know why this ideology is being pushed so hard? It's because of the autogynophiles. Right. It's because they don't want to be, if you call them autogynophilic, instead of just saying that you are a woman just like I am a woman, um, right. then they are pulled out of the reverie of their um, sexual fantasy and autogynophiles struggle with narcissism. And so there's this narcissistic rage that fights against you and <laughs> says, no, you have to identify me as a biological. Kind of get the sense that, you know, I, I don't know how to discern all that. Yeah. Um, but I, I get the sense that autogynophiles are kind of being scapegoated in a sense of like huh. all the ills of, the transgender, the transgender movement can kind of come down to this category of, huh. of people, um, which I think is a little distressing in some ways. And all, all of that's very, to me and to you, you know, very interesting. And if you're, um, if you want to engage this conversation on deeper levels, it's good to be aware of that. My, my fear is that when we let <laughs> you know, Babylon's culture wars shape our heart too much, mm. then as Christians, yeah. we miss the opportunity of people sitting in front of us. Like as I've, you know, navigated and followed the kind of broader societal conversation, you have, you know, a, a very small minority of some very loud and influential voices mm. giving the impression that that represents all trans people or take, you know, Biological males and female athletics, a huge thing on the news, you know, right? It's all, it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, but for every one, and, and I'm not saying that's not important in of itself. I'm saying for every one biological male trans-identified person in a, trying to play in female-only sports, there's 500, yeah. there's 1,000 trans people, many of whom are in our churches who are wrestling with their gender identity, who if all we do is focus on what society tells us we should focus on, we're going to miss, or we're going to, our hearts might be shaped in a more combative way. And we're going to yeah. miss out on pastoral opportunities with many people who are right in front of us that we're, that we're missing. So, and again, I'll say one more time, I'm not saying those broader societal questions are not important. I'm just yeah. saying when our, when we let our, our favorite news outlets <laughs> beat us that and only that, you know, yeah. um, Ben Shapiro on the right or whoever on the left, you know, it's like, right. um, that's just, they're, they're just, their lens is that culture war. And that's, we can't let that shape our hearts, you know? Um, you know, and I think when I, I agree with you completely. Um, I think when Christians do engage in these culture wars, um, they can inadvertently, and I, I do believe it is inadvertent most of the time really hurt a lot of yeah. people that with, um, uh, I, what's the, what's the buck, uh, I, when you shoot a shotgun, what's, what, what comes out of it? Shot? 
collateral damage or um, yeah anyway the collateral damage <laughs> friendly fire friendly fire maybe or yeah <laughs> yeah you you unintentionally um, hurt people when you're attacking some enemy over there and you don't realize you have lots of friends in between you and the enemy you know i've been sitting i was sitting in a small group and um this woman in the small group brought up like um how she had to go through like a dei training at work and uh, when she said this, I'm like thinking, oh, no, where is this going to go? And, you know, she was like just talking kind of and I don't blame her because, you know, I think without ed- without kind of intentional education on like how can we engage these topics with love as Christians, kind of the default um, mode is sort of talking about these topics with some sort of level of derision so she was talking about how like using people's preferred pronouns and she kind of spit it out. Like she was disgusted with the idea of using people's preferred pronouns. And like there were audible like groans in the room, like, oh yeah, preferred pronouns. Yeah. You know, and I'm sitting there like, oh gosh, like, can I be a part of this group? Like, am I gonna be welcome in this church? Uh. Um and, and yet there was another, there was a guy who was also there who kind of vaguely shared like hey i'm really struggling with something and i just want to let you guys know that i'm like struggling and then one of the leaders was like yeah and what is this if not a safe place and it was just such an interesting juxtaposition of like what happened like 30 minutes earlier where i was like well it's really not safe for anyone who is trans and who needs like um to use gender pronouns to basically function in the world which of which you and i both know people in that boat um, yeah, so all that to say, I hope that when Christians hear my story, that it, um, would inspire them to kind of a level of compassion, of understanding, of knowing like, Hey, look, I didn't choose this experience. Like, believe me about that. There have been so many days where I wish I had a radically different experience where I wish like, Oh, why can't I just struggle with porn? Like the, <laughs> like a regular guy, you know, which, which sounds so ridiculous to yeah. say. Right. But it's like, I have been pushed to that limit so much by like this inner shame that I feel about this experience that I have that I didn't choose. Yeah. And also according to most studies out there or all studies that I've heard, like I can't change. I'm, I'm not able to like affect change into this, if you want to call it a paraphilia, or if you want to refer to it as gender dysphoria, or whatever it is, like, this is like a part of me. Mm-hmm. So I'm just seeking to like faithfully follow Jesus within that. Um, as as painful as that is sometimes. Is that the studies show that um, likely you'll deal with this for life? I mean, that's you can mitigate it, maybe do things to help reduce that radio noise in the background, or where are we at on that with, with the, how to manage this? You know, um, I have heard. So for instance, like from Ann Lawrence that, yeah, in terms of, if you want to classify it as a paraphilia, um, which I think in and of itself is a bit controversial. (laughs) Yeah. A a lot of people think of autogynophilia as a sexual orientation in and of itself, which I find to be helpful. 
and okay. maybe uh, less stigmatizing. And Anne Lawrence promotes the same idea yeah. that, yeah. hey, this can help people to like think of it as like a sexual orientation. But paraphilia is a, apparently, I'm not a scientist or a researcher, but can't can't be changed. Um, oh, okay. Would you mind if I, would it be okay if I read something from this section, which I think is really. Yes, yes, um, absolutely, yeah. And then I, I, I've got another podcast here in a few minutes. So um, yeah. after this, we'll. Right, we'll start to land a plane. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so this is from a section near the end of Men Trapped in Men's Bodies. Oh, yeah. Um, it's the section entitled The Existential Dilemma of the Gender Dysphoric Autogynophile. And why I like this, I feel oh. like it's really poignant and gives people a sense of kind of the struggle that someone in my shoes might experience. And I'll just preface by saying this is my struggle without Christ. Like without Christ, this is my only hope. Um, what, what she's describing here in this section of the book. Um, so his circumstances force him to consider the existential question. Could he live a happier, more meaningful, more rewarding life as a woman, as a transsexual woman, or would he be better off continuing to live as a man? This is a genuine dilemma because neither option is really satisfactory. Continuing to live as a man would be the easier, less expensive, and safer option. That way, he could keep his job, his reputation, his friends, and perhaps his marriage, if he has one. Continuing to live as a man wouldn't kill him. He has, after all, done it for years. He could continue to live a a life of quiet desperation. But he would still experience significant and often severe gender dysphoria, perhaps every day of his life. Eventually, he would become an old man who had never tried to live his dream. He knows that what older adults invariably regret is not what they have done, but what they failed to do when they had the opportunity. The thought of wasting the only life he will ever ever have is sad and frightening. Alternatively, he could pursue sex reassignment. That way, he could at least tell himself that he had tried to live his dream. And if he were to succeed in some measure, how great would that be? How many people can say that they achieved in some measure what they wanted most? If he successfully transitioned, he would finally be playing on the right team, the women's team, and those awful male genitalia would be gone forever. But he also knows that he would never have a normal life as a woman. He would also be he would always be an oddity, albeit perhaps a fascinating or even admirable oddity. And he could easily lose any of the things that currently make his life comfortable and safe. His job, his reputation, his friends, his family. Moreover, The kind of womanhood he could achieve would inevitably be shoddy and inadequate. Mm. He would never be able to completely erase the masculinizing effects of testosterone on his body and brain, nor the masculinizing effects of decades of living in society as a man. For an autogynophilic or dysphoric man to be willing to try to rebuild his life around his paraphilia by pursuing sex reassignment, despite the genuine risk and inevitable limitations involved, he usually needs to be both very brave and very desperate. Wow. And let me tell you, I have yeah. felt um, that desperation many times before. And that this is more above all else what leads me into doubt and weighing the cost mm-hmm. of my, my following of Christ more than anything else. It's this is what I'm sacrificing. If, if, if you know, Paul says something along the lines of like, Hey, if there is no hope, then we 
as Christians should be pitied above all else. And I, yeah. I feel the weight of that when I think uh-huh. of like, well, what if there is no life after death? And this is the only life that I live. And this is my only hope at like hmm. kind of happiness on earth is to, is to pursue these things. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a real weight that I carry. And I know a weight that besides autogonophiles, a weight that many of my trans brothers and sisters carry. So that, that yeah, paragraph think, is so honest and, and yeah, it's, it, it is sad if, because it's written without Jesus. Right. I mean, and that's, mm-hmm. you know, that can be cliched, like, Oh, just Jesus, 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 he fixes everything. It's like, well, life can be more complicated, but still like, I mean, you said it best, just you add the hope of Jesus in the middle of that and then it's manageable. But if not, the, when I read that assessment, like here's this option, here's that option. It's like, I'm kind of screwed. Like either, either way, I'm just rolling the dice and, um, you know, it's, there's not a lot of hope there. What, what advice? I just got a couple minutes. If yeah. somebody's listening, which I, you know, which was probably 20,000 people listening, I would imagine there's at least a hundred people listening. Um, yeah. That might be resonating with your story. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, like a small church. Uh, we could, yeah, <laughs> Danny, you can be the pastor. Of, um, what, what, what would you tell somebody who might be like, "Oh my gosh, I did not know there's a name for this," or "I feel like this might be me." Um, what's the next step for somebody who's resonating with your story? Mm. You know, I. I think that a tremendous amount of relief to a certain extent can be found from having a name for your struggle and, and kind of finally identifying like, Oh my gosh, this is it. And there's other people like me. Mm -hmm. Um, at the same time, I think there's also a tremendous amount of joy it's a bitter joy, but joy nonetheless, that understanding that everyone is kind of empty without Christ. Um, in, in what I just shared, you know, I, I feel that very poignantly because I know truly in the depths of my heart that my only hope is in the restoration of all things at the end of time. Mm-hmm. When I can stand before Jesus and I, and I can truly experience that healing that I once thought that I felt where I don't feel any dysphoria anymore and I'm at perfect peace and at perfect satisfaction, that that's where my real hope lies. My hope doesn't lie in necessarily self-understanding or anything like that. I, I think yeah. all of these things are helpful. Um, and it's certainly helpful to the extent that they can release us from feeling like, oh, I need to feel a special amount of shame for my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's very, um, very as, as helpful as you might've hoped for those hundred people listening. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I want to tell them too, like, you're not alone. You don't need to feel an extra dose of shame for, for what you're experiencing. Like Jesus loves you in your brokenness. And by the way, it's not just you that is broken. Everyone has broken sexuality. Everyone has a broken gender identity as we're all just trying to navigate. Like how is God calling me to live as a man or as a woman or as an intersex person of one of very few intersex persons who might be kind of ambiguous, but, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a, what about a resource? Where, where would you point them to? Is mm. if they're like, oh my gosh, what is the best thing out there that I should read? Then we've referenced Ann Lawrence's yeah. Ann Lawrence's book a lot. There's nothing really. I mean, the, in terms of a Christian approach, you have Yarhouse, his two page, two or three page discussion of kind of what it is. I have a passing, you know, paragraph in my book. All the stuff out there is not. I mean, they're not written by Christians, which. I think they're can be really helpful for understanding it, but they're still not going to give like a good pastoral kind of assessment. But um, yeah, what would be the sure. one, the next, if no, if someone's might be experiencing this, but it hasn't read anything, what would be your first recommendation? I see you're recommending. I write a book. I get it. I'm reading between the lines. Wink. <laughs> um, okay. No, uh, I am um, very astute. <laughs> I, I think that one of the most helpful kind of summations for me was in that book by Deborah So, The End of Gender. Okay. Again, I, I won't recommend the whole book or endorse the whole whole book. Heck, hear this, please, anyone. I don't necessarily endorse all of the theory of autogynophilia, right. although I do find it helpful for understanding myself. Um, but that chapter is a really good, I, I think, entry point into getting a really good summary of what the experience is. And if you're interested in exploring further, then yes, Anne Lawrence's Men Trapped in Men's Bodies is a really good read, but only for those who are interested. <laughs> yeah, that one's pretty academic. Um, I have uh, one other friend read it and he thought it was helpful. If you want an easier read, but a more controversial read, you know, J. Michael Bailey's A Man Who Would Be Queen. It is, I, I thought it was like most critiques in this conversation, most harsh critics haven't charitably read a book. Like when I read the book, I did not see it as transphobic at all. He's got trans friends. He's good friends with Dan Lawrence and others and everything. Yeah, He just writes is like, hey, here's the science. Here's the facts. He's not, he's not sensitive. He's not a sensitive person or writer. So if that – but he's not, he's not offensive. He, I didn't find it offensive at all. I thought it was really helpful actually. Um that it's was on my list. It's I a pa- it's a page it turner. It's 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 more. Yeah. What's funny is it actually won an award from the lambda. The lambda. Of, yeah, yeah, but then it was revoked because yeah. people got upset. But originally, well, he was nominated. People, yeah, the LGBT community originally found it really helpful. Then other yeah. people didn't, and it got. I mean, he got death threats and rape threats, and I mean, just horrifically. Um, yeah, hor- uh, I mean. Yeah, it was the the wake of that was nasty. In fact, Alex uh, Dreger, Alice Dreger, yeah. her book Galileo's yeah. Middle Finger, which is I think is mm-hmm. the best titled book of any book ever, <laughs> Galileo's <laughs> Middle Finger, which it's a good can, one. Um, she documents kind of that book and also when people do science and it becomes politically incorrect, what happens and everything and. Um, yeah, um, and these are all yeah. very, they, 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 all these people who write on this are on the left. These aren't like concert. This isn't like no, um, you know, Chris Rufo or somebody. I don't know if that makes <laughs> sense, but <laughs> it's not. It's not like somebody who's like out to like, you know, destroy the left or whatever. Um, these are all people who are very liberal uh, in their thinking. But um, you probably explained this in your introduction, but that is one reason why I'm I'm choosing to kind of withhold more information about myself is just you know to protect right not only me i i have 
I don't have the biggest self-preservation tactics, but my wife, especially in our, our privacy, just as I sure. look yeah. to hopefully approach this conversation with, with a lot of nuance and grace and yeah, understanding. Danny, thanks for being on Theology in Iran. Thank you so much for your honesty, your courage, and um, your wisdom, really. I, I, I know that um, uh, this podcast is going to help people who might not have found help anywhere else. So thank you so much for opening yourself up. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a pleasure. Take care.